Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name's Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Jatinda Candola and Will Dalton. How are you today, guys? Good, thank you. Good, thanks. How are you doing? All right. Yeah, thanks for asking. So, news. Uh, we're going to start with that. Um, I'll go first this week. So, I'm going to cover the uh, the OVH data center fire. So, this is a, a very large cloud provider um, based in in France, I think. And uh, they've had a huge fire, which has destroyed one of their data centers completely and almost obliterated another one as well. Um, I think, well, not obliterated, but it's, it's done some damage to it. And it's an interesting story in our industry because it throws up a common misconception about cloud-based platforms, so virtual platforms that are someone else's problem to look after. So a lot of the services that were platformed within these um, data centers when they burnt down are potentially unrecoverable or at least not recoverable for quite some time, because obviously all the data centers had a shared ventilation system. So even the ones that didn't get burned down ended up full of smoke and had sprinklers turn on and all sorts of things. So they've they've had you know ma- absolutely catastrophic outage, and so it just goes to show that yeah you know you can contract a cloud provider to uh, to look after your data and to, to take responsibility for making sure that their services are available. But if they have an absolute catastrophe you might be down on your luck. So it's an interesting case study because it shows that just putting stuff in the cloud is not a magic thing that doesn't mean that you don't need to have backup and disaster recovery plans in place. You know, you can choose where to platform your stuff in the cloud, for example, in terms of um, where it goes on the globe and all sorts of stuff. It was something that really highlighted to me the importance of, of still using some of the more traditional thinking, even when you're designing cloud solutions, because if you don't have a BCDR plan, you you could potentially be screwed. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's going to take them a month or so to restore some of the services That's and some bad, of the data. Ma- mm, and some a, of the data may have been it down. Yeah, so I mean, the, when you see the pictures, I'll, I'll post one on Twitter. But it's absolutely gutted this data center. I mean, it's just been it's a skeleton. You know, it's been burnt to burnt to death. But um, they've got apparently about sixty technicians there, and they've they've taken delivery of a huge pile of servers and and storage and stuff, and they're they're basically frantically rebuilding stuff as quickly as they possibly can to try and bring their services back up unhappy employee was it there has been no confirmation of what caused the fire it's an interesting point actually because in putting stuff in the cloud it shields you from a lot of the complications of it infrastructure and also some of the techniques and processes some of those complications techniques and processes are still important you know whether you're cloud or not and i think that kind of shielding or abstraction away from those things that are important uh, can be dangerous yeah, it's very easy to assume, yeah, that it's someone else's problem. Yeah. But the first tweet that went out from the guy who founded the company was, "It's time to enact your BCDR plans." And I just suddenly sat back in my chair and thought, "I bet there's a lot of people who thought yeah. that was your yeah. problem." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Last thing you test, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, but but also, I think a lot of people that I've met don't think you need one if it's in the cloud. It's like, oh yeah, someone oh, else's right. problem. There's, okay. you know, it's not not going to be an yeah. issue. But of course, yeah. it is if if they it have is, a, yeah. a an act of God. They sometimes leave it so far down the the path that they just forget about it or, or yeah, knock it off. When they run out yeah. of money, they're like, okay, we'll worry about that. Yeah, later. It is, yeah. isn't it? It's first thing to yeah. go, isn't it? It's like testing, isn't it? In general, yeah. it's like, okay, first thing to go is that. <laughs> but it's it's the it's the cloud provider's problem is a frequent thing that I hear, but this just yeah. goes to show that if the cloud yeah. provider has got a very serious problem and they need to enact their own BCDR plan. Sorry, BCDR stands for Business Continuity and Disaster Recovery, just in case anyone's wondering what I'm talking about. No, I did wonder. They well yes often but not because of that acronym right but yeah they uh, that you know they said it's time to enact your own plans and it just goes to show it's really important to have one even if you're on the cloud so mm-hmm. so anyway that's my news story and um, Will did you want to go next with yours 
Yeah, okay. Um, NFTs are the latest get get rich scheme, which is a, an article in Financial Times. NFTs, you heard of these things? Yep. But yep. can you explain what they are? Okay. Well, I'll try. It's a non. It's it's funny. The name's funny in itself. Non fungible token. So it's, it's basically a latest fad in the uh, in the crypto sphere world, which is the world of blockchains and bitcoins. The article's interesting because it talks about the actual value of of NFTs after after a sale of digital collage, shall I say, by an artist known as Beeple. Now, he used to sell his stuff for for about a hundred dollars a pop. And his latest creation sold for $69.3 million, <laughs> although, yeah. although that was paid in cryptocurrency. So I'm not actually sure what the, what the true, value, true, true value of that is. The piece is called Every Day, the First 5,000 Days. It's a, it's a JPEG image file. It's 21,000 pixels squared. Okay, So like a standard image is about 2,500 pixels on a 30-inch on a monitor. And basically, this guy posted an image every day from about 2007, and he's just he's mashed up each of these images that he's posted into a digital mosaic. His quote was, "By posting the results online, I'm less likely to throw down throw down a big pile of ass shit." <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that's a quote because normally we don't use language like that. <laughs> what on earth? What's been sold, right? So what has actually been yeah. sold is this is a is this JPEG file, right? They've signed it, it's been cryptographically signed by a by a digital certificate, and then that's been popped onto a blockchain, which which guarantees its providence, the original artist, right? So that's that that's the thing that's been sold. The actual piece of art itself isn't actually that valuable because that piece of art could be copied and copied and copied and copied. It's yeah. a combination of the art, the signature. And the fact that it's on blockchain is is what is what values it. So, and that's what the that's what the FT is going on about. It's actually well, what is the what is the actual value of this? And there was an interesting opinion from actually a a person from the art world, yeah, who <laughs> went through it, um, and he had an opinionated piece that I recommend you that, that, that you read. His a quote from it was, "What I found isn't so pretty." Put it that way. There were two stories like this, weren't there, this week? Because one was um, also about the guy who founded Twitter selling his first tweet, which he did using exactly the same yeah. blockchain-based technology. Yeah. And people saying, "What? What's the value? Because it's already out there. You know, you can still look it up on Twitter. You know, it's still yeah. there. You just search for it, and you can see the tweet. So, what's the point in owning that when it can be copied and, and viewed by literally anybody? You know, you you have no power if you buy one of these things to restrict people's access to it. Yeah. Well, as I said, it's it's that providence. It's the guarantee. Yeah. Which is, which is guaranteed, you know, from through the blockchain. So I suppose some of it might be interesting, like the first tweet from the guy that runs Twitter. You know, you can see the value in it. And also maybe in a freakish kind of way, you know, Trump posting stuff, you know, yeah, incite, yeah. incites the violence on capital. Oh, don't, don't tell him. He'll sell all his tweets. Because he's such a nut job and it's, it's, it's made such a sort of scar in history. It be, it's quite an interesting thing to own. I can see the value of that. Yeah, I'm not quite yeah. sure about art that potentially is an art being mm. sold through Providence, yeah. but but that's the article. It's it's interesting. We really need to do an episode on blockchain and and this kind of stuff at some point because there's talk now of people buying cars and houses, you know, Tesla, all sorts of stuff. But we must park mm -hmm. that there because we've we've got another topic to talk about today, which will take a while. So, Stinder, do you want to do your news story? Yep. Yeah, uh, so my news story is about the long-awaited opening of Super Nintendo World in Japan. 
there's a theme park oh, one dedicated to Super Mario World <laughs> uh, that's just opened in Japan uh, nearly a year after it was uh, meant to because of COVID. Uh, it cost half a billion US dollars uh, to, to build it and get it ready. And obviously at the moment, because of the pandemic, only people in Japan can visit. But it shows a, a shift from Nintendo moving from a games company to an entertainment company. Yeah, interestingly, they weren't originally a games company. Um, I can't remember what they did originally, but they they moved into games. Um, so they're obviously branching out a bit. Sell stamps, did they? I'm slightly worried I'm losing my video games guy of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> badge here you've stolen it well the thing to look forward to is there's three other venues going to open uh one in la orlando and singapore oh, not here interesting not in wow. yeah no not in scunthorpe no. or something not yet. <laughs> Takes the Lego, <laughs> so we will move on if we may to uh, to this week's main topic so this week uh will and i both got quite excited about this one so we're actually going to split the uh the duties of chatting through the um, the explanation of the topic, because we're going to talk about quantum computing. And quantum is an interesting term. It brings to mind a number of different things. For me, um, as a young kid in the 90s, it brings to mind Quantum Leap, uh, the 1990s TV <laughs> show, definitely, which almost ruined my childhood, incidentally, with one of the saddest endings ever. Spoilers. But uh, but yeah, obviously, there's there's been stuff like Quantum of Solace, uh, a Bond film, which I have no idea why they put the word quantum in the title um it means all sorts of things to all sorts of different people uh, it gets thrown around as a term a lot in sci-fi and stuff but understanding what it really means and what it can really do for us is is legitimately fascinating which is why both will and i got quite excited about it so will to start with can you explain for us what quantum <laughs> computing is <laughs> oh yeah nice one Thanks easy job yeah yeah i'm going to take the easy questions uh, and you're going to get uh, the really yeah, yeah, ones. Yeah. <laughs> So it's a computer. <laughs> it's a computer that looks cool, I'd say. If you've if you've um if you ever played a game called Bioshock, I don't know if you Julian, you must have played a game. I absolutely have, yes. Love Bioshock. Yeah, and yeah, the so it looks like Bioshock is like sort of advanced tech, but designed in quite a Victorian way. You know, you sort of got like polished brass pipes and <laughs> lots of pumps, and it looks quite a magnificent machine. It's sort of what a quantum computer looks like. They look damn cool. And they're there to perform quantum calculations, which maybe we'll talk about later. comes in many different types of flavours. So there's different types of quantum computing. Um, the thing that I think we'll talk about is quantum circuits. And uh, it solves some things. So that's important. It doesn't, it's not, it takes absolutely everything and solves it much quicker than a classic computer. It solves some things much quicker than a classic computer, but others it doesn't. So some things that it does solve quicker, you know, it will take minutes that a classic computer will literally take centuries to do. And when I talk about classic computer, I'm talking about like a silicon-based computer. So there's a classic TED Talk promoting the virtues of quantum computing that I'll, that I'll, I'll, paste, I'll post in, in Twitter. And they talk about a particular use case where a classic computer would take five trillion, 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 trillion years <laughs> to compute, and a quantum computer would take 30 minutes, right? How they calculated that, I don't think there was someone there waiting five trillion years. Stop watching. <laughs> <laughs> Finish. Well, that took a long time. Right, now the quantum. But that, that at a real high level is, is quantum computer. Yeah, awesome. So, I mean, it's it, it potentially is going to revolutionise an awful lot of stuff, as you've already said, and, and we'll get into the actual mechanics of how it does it uh, in a minute. But I guess the real question is, why why do we need it? Why are we looking into this at all um, at the moment? Well, you know Moore's Law, 
I so do. Moore's, Moore's Law, yeah, just to recap, is about computers ever since I've joined IT, it's been doubling in, in power about two years, every two years or so. And this is because transistors, which are like the building blocks of, of classic computers, have been shrinking in size every, at the same rate every two years. Um, but we're going to hit the limit of how small we can go on those transistors. Not immediately, but we are going to hit the limit. Uh, and this limit is imposed by the laws that are around us, the laws of physics. The limit that we're going to reach is still pretty small. So it's going to be <laughs> three atoms and an electron, which, which is pretty small. Uh, to get any smaller than that, uh, you have to change basically your thinking. So you have to go from the physical world and the laws that apply, this is general relativity, and the laws that apply to the very large, so that covers, you know, me, you, atoms, planets, universes, whatever's beyond that, to something called quantum mechanics. And I'm sure everyone's heard of quantum mechanics. This deals with how things work in the very small. So it goes it goes smaller than the atoms, you know, so it goes to the subatomic level. And we're talking about protons and we're talking about quarks. So you guys heard of quarks. Now, a quark, it, here's an analogy. So the size of a quark is smaller than 43 billion billionths of a centimeter, right? <laughs> so that's 2,000 times smaller than a proton, which is 60,000 times smaller than a hydrogen atom, which is 40, 40 times smaller than the DNA helix thing, which is about a million times smaller than a grain of sand, right? So small is good, right? Because that's small very good, small. It's very <laughs> that's small. Very very small. So we can because it's so small, we can then pack more into transistors. Yeah, we haven't got that limit of atoms and electrons anymore. Although, of course, in the quantum world, they're not called transistors. Yeah, they're called something else. Right? More laws start to apply again. Yeah, we can start doubling, and we're probably going to be exponentially increasing them. The kind yeah. of things that we can process because we're going to the world of very small. So just to, to make it really clear to anybody who isn't really nerdy like us, why transistors are important. So a transistor is a thing that can either be on or off effectively. And the reason it's important in computing is because uh, it represents binary by, by being on or off. So if it's on, then it's a one. And if it's off, then it's a zero. And so that allows you to compute stuff using silicon, right? So if your transistors are flickering on and off billions of times a second, you can do complex calculations. But that is why when you hear about binary code being like the the basic building blocks of modern computing, that's what your computer is doing. It's flicking these transistors on and off really, really quickly. And that brings with it a whole bunch of problems because they're on a silicon wafer. You have to work out how you're going to transfer the heat that's generated by turning them on and off and all sorts of stuff. And, and more was a very, very clever chap. It's 18 months rather than two years, I think, the actual thing that he said. But but it's around eight, between 18 months and two years. Processing power doubles because we, we've been successfully able to, to shrink the number of transistors on what's called a die. And, uh, and effectively double computing power. So, so that's how traditional computing kind of works. So I guess the next question then for you, Will, another easy one for you, is how does quantum computing well, work yeah, by, by contrast to that, yeah? All right. Well, let's talk about quantum for a bit, yeah? I've done a lot of Googling. <laughs> Definition of quantum, right, is that it's, it's an interesting term. It's the, it's the minimal amount of energy to enact a change, which is a really, really good news, actually, because when we talk about minimum amount of energy, this is good for environmental concerns. So if you look at light, the minimal amount of energy to, to make light is a photon. And, and in computer terms, yeah, the minimal amount of energy is nature, is all around us. And they're the subatomic particles that we've just talked about. So when we're down in, in this land of the very small, 
strange voodoo-like things start to happen, and that's about as technical as I'm gonna go, right? So we have strange <laughs> voodoo-like lords. So these are all defined. These are all defined by quantum mechanics. DDK Pod, the quality podcast where you tune in to hear us go. It's basically just voodoo. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so we start to deal in in quantum mechanics. You start to deal in probability. Yeah. Rather than something specific, like with general relativity, you're dealing with something specific. There's something specifically happened in a place at a specific time. And it's defined by reassuringly comparatively easy, yeah, the laws of laws of relativity. With quantum mechanics, you you you're in the very small and you're starting to be into your introduced you're introduced to terms like, and they're quite sexy, I think, superposition. Yeah, you could take that in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> I think your idea of sexy and mine probably don't quite like Didn't we cover this in last week's episode? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> that was many superpositions. Entanglement, that's another good one. Uh, uh, so maybe not again. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, don't Google that. And then maybe not so sexy qubit and qubit gates. Yeah. So quickly and basically, you know, qubit is equivalent to the bit that Julie was talking about before in a classic silicon computer. And the qubit gate is equivalent to the logical gate, yeah, which is what makes up the transistors. Again, what Julian was, was talking about earlier. So a bit can have, Julian was saying, zero and one, it can have two states. A qubit has those states, but it can have every other value in between. Yeah. Right, and this right, right. is and this yeah. is what's known as superposition. Yeah, okay. right. Okay, okay, okay. Can I ask, uh, where? what's a real-world example of where a normal person would understand quantum <laughs> computing fitting well. in society? Well, I so okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a real world example first of all of, of quantum mechanics because a lot of people will have heard of this, right? Because I think what Will's getting into is quite complicated. There is a there's a thought experiment that mo- a lot of our listeners, I reckon, will probably have heard of, which is the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, right? So what Schrodinger said was basically if you put a cat in a box, his way of explaining quantum mechanics was you put a cat in a box with a flask of poison. You put a radioactive substance in the box, which is monitored by a Geiger counter, which everybody knows is the thing that detects radioactivity. And if that Geiger counter detects radioactivity, the flask shatters, it releases the poison, and the cat dies, right? So, so far, so simple. Now, what quantum mechanics implies, or at least the Copenhagen interpretation, which we won't get into, implies, is that after a while, in this sealed box, the cat is both alive and dead simultaneously. Now, I know that sounds stupid, but you don't know, do you, whether it's alive or it's dead, because it could be dead or it could be alive. You don't know. The lid's on the box. You can't see. So what stabilizes the cat into either being alive or dead, and not both alive and dead, is somebody observing the cat, right? So if you take the lid off the box, in theory, in quantum mechanics, the cat snaps into either being dead or being alive. It takes one of those two permanent states and and it can't be undone. But for a while there in the middle, it's in both states simultaneously because nobody is looking at it in order to, to apply a permanent state to it, right? So that effectively is where you get the concept of a superposition coming from because it's it's in a superposition until it takes one of those permanent states. I think that's right, isn't it, Will? So if yeah. you then apply that to qubits, how, how does that then work in the computer? Right, so we can use that analogy and say, right, a qubit, which remember is the equivalent of a bit 
in the classic computer, yeah, a qubit is both alive or dead. <laughs> so it's either zero or one, but every value in between. So a whole lot of logic can be applied to these alive or dead or zero or one, alive and dead, sorry, zero and one, and every value in between qubits. A whole lot of logic can be applied to these qubits to build a system. This logic that builds these systems is, is represented by quantum gates. Remember, quantum gates is the equivalent of the of the logical gate or the transistor. Yeah, in the classic computer. So the which, gate which is then gives you res- the gate is effectively the thing that that looks at it and snaps it into a position, right? The quantum gate is applying logic. No, it's not snapping it into position. The quantum gate is ah. applying logic. It's still within superposition. That's the key thing. So you still yeah. got these Sorry, yes. multiple, multiple, multiple values, but you're applying logic to it. So instead of applying logic to zero and one, you're applying logic to a superpositioned value of zero and one and every value in between. So imagine the different variants you can have with with that, right? (laughs) So imagine doing that computation. Instead of on zero or one, on very possible state values, that's a huge amount of possible values. Yeah, well, it's almost infinite, right? It's it's any value between zero and one. So it's basically an infinite number of values. It's N. So so you've got an almost infinite number. Yeah, sorry. This is why we get you to explain this and not me, because I've got it the wrong way around. So Um, we'll only settle. So what... So it'll only settle on the state. You'll only observe whether a cat is alive or dead, yeah, when you measure it, yeah? Yeah. Uh, so you've, you've basically applied computational processing through qubit gates, yeah, on an infinite number of values. Imagine the possibilities and the probabilities, yeah? And then when you want an actual result, you look at it or you measure it, and whoa, there's your result. This question of when exactly quantum superposition ends and reality kicks in, is resolved into one possibility or the other. It's very important. Yeah, we have our qubit, which is any state between zero and one, and we can apply a thing called qubit qubit gates to qubits. By doing this, you start to get systems. Yeah. So, however, yeah. sometimes a system can't be broken down into its simple qubits and qubit gates. Right. So, a system is made up of qubits and qubit gates. Sometimes you can't break that down into its into its individual parts, into its individual qubits and qubit gates. When you can't do that. Yeah, that's known as entanglement. Ah, yeah. So I wanted to talk about entanglement. I was hoping you were going to come on to that. So um, entanglement's another important concept in, in quantum computing. And I promise, Jake, I haven't forgotten your question. We are getting there. <laughs> <laughs> we will talk in a minute about what we do with this. But entanglement's another important thing to, to understand. So I'll cover that really quickly. The best way to talk about that, I found, is to talk about migratory birds. So stick with me here because we're going on a little journey. So very briefly, um, scientists now think that the way that birds migrate is by using quantum mechanics in their eyeballs, which is just incredible in and of its own right, right? So what they do is they measure the Earth's magnetic field. So if you put a robin in a box, which is a migratory bird, it will always flutter off in the same direction inside the box. It can be a dark box, no lights, no nothing else. Put it in a box, it'll always try and fly towards the same corner of the box. And that's because it can read the Earth's magnetic field through the box, right? The way they think it does that is by having a special protein, I think it's called a molecule called a cryptochrome in its eyeball. And when light hits the eyeball, the photons that Will was talking about, the bigger bigger particles in this, they whack into this molecule and they knock an electron out of place. And what that does is it creates something called a radical pair. So that is basically a duo of unstable molecules. Um, But because they're created at the exact same instant in the exact same way, their fates are permanently interlinked. 
So when you have two entangled molecules like this, if you do something to one of those molecules, it does exactly the same thing to the other mo molecule, even if those two molecules have been separated over a distance, right? So that sounds impossible. You know, if I, if I snap the leg off a chair in a room, the, another chair that was made at the same time doesn't suddenly lose its leg. But at a molecular level, this is exactly what's happening with quantum entanglement. That, that's how it works. So this is a very, very precarious state to be in where you've got these two molecules that are connected to one another through entanglement, but they can't, they can't last like that for very long because it's, it's messing with all sorts of voodoo, like Will said. So eventually what happens is the two molecules will recover and they'll settle back into their original state so they're no longer entangled in, in the same way. So for a while, they'll flip-flop in perfect synchronization between different chemical states and then eventually they will just snap back into into a proper state because they basically have to make a decision what they want to be sounds like a very stupid way of explaining it but that's kind of what they do when that happens that then sends the information to the bird about what the magnetic field is doing because it's the magnetic field that's influencing them flip-flopping between those different chemical states and then the bird knows what direction to go in it's absolutely extraordinary but that's why entanglement is, is an important concept to explain. So back to you then, Will. How is entanglement useful in quantum computers? <laughs> well, I'm going to keep doing this to you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to switch these questions soon, I'm telling you. Entanglement quantum computers, right, it's, as, as I've talked about, it's a series of qubits and qubit gates. It's a series of those building blocks of a quantum computer yeah, that can't be broken down into their parts, so they're related which means that if you exert a state change on one part of that, of that entangled system, it will impact the other part, like you've described in your example there, Julian. Why is this important, though? Right? So if you have systems that can be broken down into the single qubits and qubit gates, ultimately they can be sort of simulated by classical computers, albeit it would have to be a pretty massive one. Yeah? You, know, you add more qubits, you add more bits, your, your computational power scales up linearly yeah difficult yep. for you to say one thing a classical computer will never be able to simulate though is entanglement yeah entanglement when you have an entangled system it produces an exponential not linear exponential increase in its number crunching ability yeah that you won't get from just increasing bits or increasing qubits and there's the advantage there of the quantum computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, so like Will's saying, if you've ever programmed, to, to relate it back to the real world a bit more and start answering your question, JK, if you've ever programmed sort of an Excel macro or, or whatever, you've, all, you've probably everybody who's listening has had that sinking feeling where they've gone, oh God, you know, the more stuff I add to this, the slower it gets. So do you know the feeling where you fill in a cell and press, you know, go and, and it then chugs for, you know, a couple of seconds or something. And the more data you add, the more it starts to chug and the worse it gets. So as the number of rows in, a, in your Excel sheet grows linearly, the time consumed by the macro running grows exponentially, right? So it gets worse and worse and worse. And, you, you know, you start, once you get to a certain point, adding even one small piece of data will just make the whole thing grind for like an hour or something. It's, it's, it's terrible. It just gets worse. And the same problem is observed in supercomputers. So you get the same problem happening where the scale may be slightly different to an Excel sheet on someone's computer, but the effect is the same where there's a point in time in which every algorithm that you're running on a supercomputer, no matter how simple it is, becomes unworkable on account of the, the overwhelming weight of the input data. So you know, the more data you pour in, eventually it's just going to fall over. Um, this precise thing is what Will's talking about, that, that quantum computing would eliminate. 
So you would a fully functional quantum computer would be capable of exponential scaling and scaling that computing capacity in a linear way. So so you're going up in exact lockstep with the amount of data that you're putting in. So it will never get slower because of that. It can it can consume the whole amount in one go effectively, and it can just keep going, and it will keep going at that incredible speed. And that's why when you are using it to do stuff like Will was talking about earlier on, you know, it, it is able to take those vast amounts of stuff and reduce things that would take traditional computers, which would fall over because of the amount of input data and, and take trillions of years to finish their calculations. It's able to do them in half an hour. That's why it can do it. And it's very, very clever. It's important to say, I think, that we don't really know how it does it. <laughs> <laughs> in entangled systems. In fact, Einstein yeah. described it you know, I talk about voodoo. I'm in great company. <laughs> Einstein described it as spooky action at a distance. But there you go. There you go. If he describes it that way, he probably knows more about it than we do. Just so. Um, so, <laughs> what, what are the pro- what are the promises then? Will what what are the things it's going to revolutionise and change? Where can, where can it be applied? Yeah, and it's only a promise. Yeah. So it sort of starts to unlock the molecular world. Yeah, and I just want to say that actually because that that in itself offers vast potential. If you're in the molecular world, you know, drug modeling, for example, yeah? You know, look at how drugs are are modeled. Now they take decades in order to model, although COVID is maybe an exception there. Uh, It's different because it's a vaccine, isn't it? So you're not not looking for a a specific molecule um, out of of nature or somewhere else that's going to have an effect. You're you're using the disease itself to cure the disease. So it's slightly different, I think. Yeah, quite right. And they they had a head start as well. You know, there was a lot. Yeah. It's using very standardized before. methods, wasn't it? Yeah. So so it, it's a bit different to looking for um, a random cancer drug or something by mulching up plants and then looking at all the different molecules or something and trying to work exactly. out if any of them have an effect on a tumor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Security and encryption, financial modeling, um, weather forecasting, all those things where you think, you know, sort of chaos applies because you're down at such a low level, you know, down at a molecular level. Um, you can simulate, if you like chaos, um, traffic batteries, better batteries, the chemical composition of batteries and how that works. Um, <laughs> the best one, the best one on my list is fertilizer production. Bit weird. <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay, so that's some of the things that it can be, it can be applied to. Then I guess. Yeah. Anyway, I think enough. Enough of you asking me questions. Yeah. Let me, let me let me ask. What, you what's happening here? What's happening here? <laughs> I'm afraid I'll stop to this. What do we, what actually, you know, so, so when I said, okay, this is what it promises, what do we actually use it for now? Uh, so that's interesting. So yeah, you you did give me this little job to to look into. And uh, I think you, you already knew the answer, which is why you gave it to me. So the answer is not a lot at the moment. So the problem with quantum computing is that although it does offer these massive shifts in terms of what you can do in, in, in one amount of time, it's a very difficult thing to wrap your head around because it doesn't offer as you mentioned earlier it doesn't offer definitive answers so if you give a, a traditional computer a program and you say go generally it will produce a predictable answer or it'll crash um, but it will it will definitely produce a definite answer unless it's been specifically written to model risk scenarios or something like monte carlo analysis or something along those lines but it's not all about probability whereas with quantum computing, the solution will, that it produces will rarely be exact or definitive in the same way that we're, we're used to. There is no right answer effectively with quantum computing because that is not, it's not a deterministic machine. 
So in other words, th- there's no single solution for which um, you know, any other result would be an error with quantum computing. Instead, what it does is it chucks out a set of answers with their respective probabilities. So it's basically saying this or this or this or this or this or this or this, you know, probably millions of times over might be the right answer. And here's how likely I think that is. The other problem with quantum systems, it, that it, and this really, you know, uh, blew my mind, if you'll pardon the pun, is they explode when they're finished. So if you think about it, when if you go back to Schrodinger's cat, you know, the cat in the box, is it alive? Is it dead? It's both until you open the box. In order to get an answer out of a quantum computer, you've got to open the box, right? You've, you've got to look, you've got to measure the, measure the answer. So when a quantum computer is running, you can't look at it effectively because it would stop being a quantum computer because the final state of those things will be applied, as we spoke about earlier. So you effectively, when you start a quantum computer off, you have to build the, the device out of atoms effectively, uh, sustain it for as long as it takes to do its work. And then at the end, by its very definition, it will, it will blow up. It will, you know, it will explode, basically. The, the atoms that you've built together to do that job will, will fly apart or whatever because you're removing the quantumness from it. So it will give you a, an answer, but you would have to rebuild it again from scratch if you wanted to rerun the program within the apparatus of the quantum computer. So the answer is there's not a lot of stuff that it's actively used for at the moment that I could find anyway. Okay. If I want to use it now, can I experiment anywhere? Are there any tools, for example, that I can use? Yeah, there are a number of projects ongoing with quantum computing professionally, but but if you want to just have a play with it, the big push in our industry towards quantum computing has been going on for a few years now, probably two or three years. And uh, there's a thing called Amazon Bracket, which is available through uh, Amazon Web Services, which is the cloud thing that Amazon put out there. There's a thing called Azure Quantum, which is unsurprisingly Azure's quantum platform, which is Microsoft. And then Google have also got their own versions, and they're all basically in a bit of an arms race to try and uh, be the best at, at quantum computing. So yes, you can go and go and use it, but the question is, what are you going to use it for? So even the most advanced kind of scientists and people working in the field of quantum mechanics and computers haven't really managed to fully harness it yet. There's some examples of stuff like navigation and seismology and as you said, pharmaceuticals, where people have been building devices, but they're still only at the the theoretical level. Because in theory, you know, you could be at the bottom of Mariana Trench in the ocean, and a quantum compass would still work, because you could still measure the the magnetic field in the same way as a bird does. Whereas normal GPS, you can't get through, you know, whatever it is, 4,000, 10,000, whatever it is, meters of water, right? But unfortunately, because quantum atoms have to be kept in supercooled states and all sorts of stuff. It's very, very difficult to make it portable. So there are a lot of ongoing things that are in development at the moment, but none of them have really come to fruition. And then obviously, you know, physics, machine learning, decryption and encryption, stuff around the blockchain. You know, if if you could harness quantum computing, um, it also, you know, raises the question of what about negative stuff? You know, if somebody could work out how to harness a quantum computer on one of these platforms to break the current encryption mechanisms that we use all over the internet and all over computers, for example, they could probably break every algorithm, every cryptographic algorithm in the world in you know ten minutes or something if they could work out how yeah. to do it. But it's how it's how do you get the quantum computer to do it? Um, and so yeah, you can play with it, but there's not vast amounts you can do right now with it. On that okay. point about um, using it for negative type of activities, is there any kind of um international treaties or anything that covers that to control or influence the 
kind of um, research behind quantum? So I did not find anything. I had a brief look, but I didn't have a lot of time. So um, I don't know. It's like know AI, com- isn't it? It's like yeah, AI. I, I reckon it's like mm. the technology is always yeah. ahead of, of, of the regulation. Ahead of, yeah. of the regulation and the legislation. And, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. this is another one of those. Although it's due, it sounds like what Stephen is saying is that, you know, it's a lot is in theoretical, experimental stage. Although, yeah. although I did find an interesting article on medium.com, which was how to build your quantum, how to build a quantum computer at home. So, so I might I might give that a go. I don't just like watch that bottles. Yeah, well you can as, <laughs> as you mentioned jobs. earlier. As you mentioned earlier, you can simulate them with things like contain lots of containers and stuff um on uh, Right, on, okay. Yeah. I mean like Docker, yeah. but but anyway. Um but yeah, so if you want to learn how to use it, this final thing we're going to cover, there is a really great Carter or set of learning materials from Microsoft that we found that gives you a, a really thorough background to quantum computers and introduces all the different things that you need, all the complex numbers and other bits and pieces and the the Q sharp language which seems Seems to be the sort of thing that's coming to the front in terms of, you know, obviously uh, named with, with homage to C sharp, the programming mm-hmm. language, but Q sharp is the thing that people are starting to use to, to simulate the uh, the gates and qubits and everything else that we talked about. There, there is stuff out there, and I the thing I'd close this with because we do need to, to close it. But the thing I'd say is this is not if it's when for me. Like this mm-hmm. blew my mind. Like how how much this is potentially within our lifetime gonna gonna change things. And I I genuinely believe it's it's not an if it's a when think those learning that learning materials on the on the off chance people listening don't understand what the hell we're on about <laughs> <laughs> have you got links to the voodoo as well then in there i'm gonna put links into the voodoo yeah <laughs> literally it's just about voodoo yeah <laughs> it makes more sense than quantum it's fascinating isn't it have you got any thoughts jk on what we've been babbling on about other than my god i wish <laughs> i knew what these two were talking about probably uh, i think it's quite interesting and i think as you were talking the real thing in my head was how do i relate to it uh, hence i asked that question as you were talking through it, i started to think more about military use and about you know whether where we think that it could be used in a negative way it, almost like the the atom bomb in in some ways in terms of it's a powerful commodity to be able to master uh, and use for influence on a, on a grand scale. Yeah. So I think that uh, it's quite interesting, but it seems like there's probably still a long way to go in terms of yeah. some of these things. And uh, it'll be something worth probably coming back to uh, when the, yeah. the next kind of major breakthrough. Potentially quite scary, isn't it, as well? But Definitely, um, definitely. But we shall see. But they do look cool. So, you know, there is that. They look quite steampunky. So, yeah. Uh, we'll definitely put a picture of that on Twitter. Right. At this point, we will move on to the recommendation section then quickly. So, Will, did you want to go first with your recommendation this week? Yeah, sure. So have you ever been stuck in a meeting yes. where you're where you're wondering why the hell you're there? You know, it's been dominated <laughs> by two or three people having the chat amongst themselves. <laughs> ever, whenever you're in one of those meetings, have you ever wondered how you can make a quick escape? Wonder no more. <laughs> there is... A, there is an app that uh, out there that that allows you to escape um, Zoom meetings by get this faking technical issues and crying. <laughs> well, you have to cry. It cries yeah. on your behalf. <laughs> it cries on your behalf. It introduces a man weeping in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it works by replicating the, these kind of audio problems that you have that makes oh, people get nice. annoyed when you're in the meeting. So that you say, sorry, I've got technical issues. Oh, so, it, so does it put like a robot filter on your voice so it sounds like you've got bad bandwidth or something? Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's it a kind of virtual <laughs> audio cable. You can do this, virtual audio cable. You download 
And then when you're in Zoom, you select bits virtual on yeah. the virtual audio cable on the mic. So, you know, and then you get introduced to all these all these noises on your feed when you're in your, when you're in a Zoom session. The best one, of course, being the man crying. Um, <laughs> however, there's a, I think there's a downside to this. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm thinking while this distraction will make you unpopular in the meeting, hence it gives you an excuse to leave, there, there might be some repercussions in that, you know, you're going <laughs> to have to explain to your fellow colleagues and participants in that meeting later on why there was some was someone crying next to you might be a bit <laughs> might be a bit career limiting. Yeah, anyway. or, if, or if you you mistakenly turn on like a, a sound for a, like a dog having a, a an episode or a baby crying or something, and then they go, "But you don't have children, yeah. like what are you?" Yeah. <laughs> it might be What's useful for it? kids to use for homeschooling. I was just going to say that. Yeah, don't tell the children. Good yeah. lord! Yeah. In the office, however, it might lead to more concerns about your health and if you're okay as a person. If uh, exactly, exactly, crying in three or four meetings a week. <laughs> Oh dear, crying oh every meeting. Anyway, an act to escape a Zoom meeting by pretending to cry. Oh, fantastic! That that just sounds glorious. Um, cool. So my my. <laughs> I don't think I can I can top that. But anyway, my recommendation is God of War. So God of War is the fourth video game in the God of War franchise, bizarrely just called God of War, which the first one also was, whatever. Previous three were all set in um, uh, in ancient Greece, following a, a guy who's a, a Spartan called uh, Kratos, as he basically killed the entire pantheon of Greek gods and became, he killed Ares, first of all, and became the God of War himself, hence the title. And this uh, is the fourth game in the series. It was released in 2018. So as usual, I'm really late to the party, but at least I got it cheap. And it's on <laughs> PlayStation 4, PlayStation 4 Pro. It looks absolutely stunning. And the story picks up with, with Kratos, the same hero who is still the Greek god of war, the only survivor from the, the Greek gods, having basically turned up tens of thousands of years later or whatever in Norse mythology. So he moves into, into Norway. And then, of course, he's got, you know, your Thor and your Odin and your your Boulder and your whoever else, you know, all running around and interacting with him. But he is still the Greek god of war, but nobody really knows that. And so he's he's remarried, he's had a child, and the story starts when, unfortunately, his wife passes away and he has to take her ashes and scatter them from the highest peak in the land. And um, it's an incredible... Thoughts go out to the family. Indeed, yeah. And uh, it's an incredible story because you have your son, Atreus, who's a, who's a young boy. He probably is, I don't know, about 11 or something. I, I don't actually know how old he's meant to be. But he's completely AI controlled. And normally this is a you know, real problem in games. It's, it's very frustrating. But they've done an absolutely incredible job of, of representing this, this relationship between this, this guy uh, and, and his son as they sort of gradually thaw out with each other. Because he, his, Kratos' his backstory is that he killed unfortunately killed his his family in a, in a murderous rage you know thousands of years earlier his his oh, wife dear. and child and so so he's remarried and had another child and now he's basically shell shocked yeah. Mm, yeah well exactly and it sounds a bit maudlin but it's it's just an absolutely incredible experience i've never seen production values quite like it it's it's brilliant to play it's just fantastic so yeah i would highly recommend it stay away from spoilers if you've got any interest in norse mythology or even if you've just seen marvel movies with thor in and stuff you know it's it, it's great so yeah god of war playstation 4 is it available on multiple platforms or is it no just it's just it's a it's a sony oh, uh, exclusive no. and it's available okay. on playstation 4 only at the moment but but sony are showing signs of porting some of their games now that were previously exclusive so stuff like horizon zero dawn which also came out, which came out in 2016, I think that's now been ported onto PC. When they originally said it never ever would be, it would always be exclusive. So you may one day be able to play it, but not at the moment. Anyway, Jatinda, do you want to go ahead with your recommendation? 
watch? Yeah, yeah. Um, my recommendation is a, another TV series called Zero Zero Zero. It's out on Sky at the moment. It's to do with drugs, and I find it interesting because it starts off quite similar to Narcos. So if anybody's watched Narcos, this is something that you might be attracted to. I've only watched a few episodes so far, but the cinematography is absolutely fantastic. And the characters look as if they've got a lot of depth and uh, it seems to be very interesting so far. Excellent. Okay. And what, sorry, what platform was that on again? So that's on Sky. Ah. Sky are making a bit of an effort now, I see, with them. Yeah. I think they're yeah. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yep. I, I'm getting more and more tempted. I think I saw a Sky deal the other day in the UK as well, where you could get Netflix thrown in with it okay. for like an extra tenner or something. So it was, yeah, I'm kind of kind of tempted. Mm, but yeah. Don't know, don't know. Maybe another, <laughs> I'll talk about that later, but yeah. I'll give you my Sky <laughs> story. Oh, okay. Well, we'll do that on another episode because we're, we're, we've gone massively over this week, but I think it was worth it for the for the quantum chat. So I think that's the show, chaps. So we'll wrap it up there. Thanks very much again for this week. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Um, hopefully everybody out there got something out of this. So uh, if you want to contact the show, we are available on ddkpod at ddklimited.com. That's ddkpod at ddklimited.com. If you want to tweet us, we are at ddklimited. And if you want to get in touch with us on LinkedIn, we are Dalton Day Candola. And also a final shout out, a big thank you to Charlie for editing these episodes for us. Uh, So thanks very much, guys. And um, I guess we'll catch everyone again in two weeks' time. Cheers, everyone. Thanks. I'm off for a lie down, mate. Playing cards, by the way. That's what Nintendo made before they made video games. Ah. They made a type of collectible playing card. That's right. Yeah. Who knew? Card games, not stamps. (laughs) No. No, but you were close. I can see why you went that way.